Hi, I'm Valerie, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real scientists answer your beauty questions and give you an insider's look at the beauty product industry. This is episode number 179. I'm your host, Valerie George, and with me today is Perry Romanowski. Hi, Perry. Hello, Valerie. I'm so happy to be back. Yes, it's good to hear you. I've done a a couple of shows on my own, and people were asking about you, so it's great to have you back. You did a great job on those shows, by the way. Even though it was solo and Cerebellum helped you out a little bit, uh, they were very good. And I hope everyone's happy to have me back. Thank you. Yeah, so what's on the docket today? Well, today we're going to answer a couple beauty questions that came in about what are the benefits of broccoli seed oil? What is the deal with California's banning a list of toxic ingredients? Uh Or trying to ban? Can you easily remove quaternium 18 from the hair? And plus, we'll cover a couple more stories that we found interesting in the cosmetics industry this week. Well, excellent. Sounds like a fun time. And speaking of fun times, you're back. Now, you were gone uh, a couple of weeks traveling out there, what, in Europe? Yeah, so I was gone a few weeks, uh, three and a half weeks to be exact. It was one of my longest trips yet. And I uh, first started out for a business meeting in Germany, and then I spent time with family. I uh, grew up in Germany, so it was good to see my cousins and so forth. I headed to a manufacturing facility in Italy and had my usual uh, large number of espressos. And then I headed to In Cosmetics Global, which was held in Paris this year. Wow, the traveling life of a cosmetic chemist. So so you're in Italy, and then there was that big show in France. Yeah, in Cosmetics Global, it's held every year. I think we've talked about it a couple times on the show, but it travels to a different European city every year. And this year it was in Paris, which is not my favorite European city, but, um, you know, it's not bad. I think, uh, you know, it's pretty polluted. Uh, I know that they've uh. been trying to clean up the air. And, and for me, I just, I love to breathe clean air. And even coming from L.A., Going to Paris, that's pretty bad. <laughs> wow, yeah, that is that is pretty bad because LA is not known for their clean air, <laughs> although <laughs> no. it's much better than it used to be. Yeah, not at all. So anyway, it was a great show. It was uh, good to see friends that I've met through the industry um, and some Twitter friends, other cosmetic chemists that I follow on social media. Also great to see interesting trends that are going to pop up from this side of the industry because not every idea comes from marketing, but uh, it was a lot of fun. So the show is pretty much an ingredient show, and they kind of show all the new ones that they want cosmetic chemists to put in their formulas, which eventually will get advertised to consumers, maybe? Yeah, hopefully. There there are some pretty neat things. I imagine it was nature-heavy. Yeah, for sure. And I think as people are being aware of where their products are coming from and where the ingredients in their products are coming from, transparency, I think, was a big factor as well, knowing what feedstock your ingredients are coming from. It's fascinating where the industry is going. You know, speaking of the industry, they opened up a new store here in Chicago, the Ordinary Store. Ooh, did you get to go? I did. My wife dragged me along to go because she really wanted to go. I've heard of the Ordinary, of course, and all the stuff going on with that, but uh, I really didn't know what their point of differentiation is. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it was interesting to go in there because it seems like on the front of their packages, they put like the percentage of active ingredient that's in there. So I guess that's their big deal. Yeah, they are into using efficacious levels of ingredients and disclosing that to the consumer. So uh, again, in this uh, vein, trend in the vein of transparency. I was stricken by how plain all their packaging is, just kind of a uh, non-flashy black uh, black and white boxes or some color there, but just like a box, and it's pretty standard packaging. Would you say their packaging is ordinary looking? <laughs> I would say it's ordinary. <laughs> yeah, I actually like their products. I, I know people have a lot to say about the company, but I think they have this minimalist approach to formulating whoever's doing their formulas, and they're using efficacious levels of whatever they're happening to have the product be about. And I, I really like that approach. Yeah, my wife likes them a lot too. She she likes them particularly for the value you get and the price mm-hmm. you pay and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah. I thought they looked fine enough. I don't know. <laughs> did you pick up any products for yourself? No, not for myself. Oh. I did sample all of their products though. They have a men's line, which is this obnoxious yellow color. Even though yellow is my favorite color, there isn't an ob- obnoxious way to do it. I'm a I'm a terrible beauty consumer for such products. Well, fortunately, all of our fans have me on the show. I use too many products, <laughs> and I'm still on my product ban, but hopefully soon I get to uh, start using and trying more. Well, should we go into some beauty science news? Yes, let's do that. All right, Valerie, let me take the first one. I saw this one study, which amused me, that claims that your car is actually dirtier than a rest stop bathroom. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, according to this story in Happy Magazine, researchers employed by the makers of Clorox, surprise, surprise, have found that the interior of your car may be a hotbed for germs. They reported that through swab testing, they found more microorganisms on seatbelts, door handles, and window buttons in rideshare vehicles and rental cars than on public restroom surfaces. So if you're uh, taking an Uber, you might take a, a little wipey to wipe down the area, I guess. Oh, yuck. They said they, in fact, they found eight times more microbes than at a public restroom. Do you remember that time Britney Spears was seen walking from her car to a bathroom at a gas station and she was barefoot? Do you remember this press incident? No, I do not know. I've not heard of this. So really, if we're adhering to the findings of this study, she actually was exposed to less microbes with her bare feet in that bathroom than in her car. That's a good point. Guess what Clorox has done? They partnered with a company called AutoNation, which is a car retailer, and they're introducing their precision care sanitizing system, powered by Clorox, of course, uh, to make the vehicles cleaner, healthier, and safer. You're a real persnickety about cleaning your car, aren't you? I am. I actually uh, clean it once a week, and I specifically make sure that I sanitize the steering wheel and the door handles. Ah, you know, it occurs to me that I, I have never done that. <laughs> Although I take my car to uh, get it washed every so often. Maybe maybe they clean the inside. Well, I, I would question the level that they detail it, but it seems like they, they have a customer, right? Otherwise, they wouldn't have come up with this. Uh, indeed, indeed. 
to me, this is kind of classic beauty product or consumer product marketing in general. And this is a pattern that as a consumer, you can look for this pattern. It happens a lot. So the first thing you do is you get some sort of consumer insight. You know, ideally, it's that some insight that plays into people's fears or insecurities. We've talked before about the effectiveness of fear marketing. Now, usually you find these things out through consumer research or or maybe even like the president of the company has these phobias about stuff. And uh, sometimes that gets turned into a product. The insight for this product is that people are afraid of germs. That's not a completely unreasonable fear and not really surprising. I imagine most people are, right? Mm-hmm. So then the next thing you do is you commission some sort of study to show that the fact that can make for a good outrageous headline, like your car has more germs than a public toilet. <laughs> Who's Everyone's going to click on that, right? Oh, yeah. And then the third thing you do is you design a product that solves the problem that you just identified. Thus, the new Clorox Total 360 Car Germ Buster product. Sounds pretty amazing, doesn't it? It does. Now, this type of marketing and product development really is highly effective. Nothing sells products better than fear, but the reality is that this product, it's unlikely to make any kind of difference in your life at all, I would imagine. People have been driving around in cars and have been exposed to that same amount of germs for years. And so the thing is, cars aren't making you sick, right? There's no extra sickness you're getting because of a car. The amount of germs you're exposed to during the course of a day is huge. And getting rid of some of them from your car, I doubt is going to make any kind of measurable difference. And the fact that there is more germs in your car than in the bathroom, that doesn't really matter because it's not just how many germs are that matters, it's which germs are they. The germs you find in the bathroom are much more harmful than the vast majority that you're going to find in your car. Oh, of course. Anyway, look for this type of fear marketing before you make a purchase in the future. You know, ask yourself a couple of questions if you're going to buy a product that you don't already buy. One, is this really a problem? And two, will this product really solve that problem? You know, it's my guess a product like this won't have much impact on the vast majority of people's lives. Well, they must have some consumers wanting that, and they're the, the right people to do it, the Clorox people. Indeed, indeed. I, although I, I don't know why they just wouldn't use bleach, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I thought it was interesting. I've seen it come up several times, and I know you've talked about this earlier, that Michelle Pfeiffer launched a genderless, 100% transparent perfume brand. And at first I thought, she meant, oh, well, the liquid's transparent. And in reading further into her line, uh, the, no, her whole concept is about transparency and letting the consumers know specifically what is in the products that she's launched. It's a direct-to-consumer perfume brand that claims to offer 100% transparency of ingredients used in their formulations, and it's called Henry Rose. Michelle started the journey when she realized there weren't any perfumes on the market that contained ingredients with a positive environmental working group score or a cradle-to-cradle certification. As you may know, if you're a loyal listener of the Beauty Brains podcast, the Environmental Working Group, or EWG, is an activist group that relies on donations to fund research in various areas such as agriculture, cosmetics, etc. And they have an online rating system for ingredients and cosmetic products where they have ranked what they believe the safety value of the ingredient is. The other organization that uh, was important to Michelle when creating her certification for her brand is using the Cradle to Cradle certification. Cradle to Cradle is another nonprofit organization not dedicated to the personal care industry, but any industry at all. And they certify products to varying degrees in five attributes, material health, material reutilization, 
renewable energy and carbon management, water stewardship, and social fairness. Yeah, I had never heard of them, and it was interesting to read of a new group. Yeah, I've seen them on a few products, not necessarily personal care, but just some household items that I have. And they essentially have various levels of certification. And so you can do something like bronze, silver, gold, or platinum. And they evaluate all five of those criteria and basically determine, you know, where did this come from? Where is it going? Is it biodegradable? What environmental impact did this have in sort of a 360 view? Um, I couldn't understand a lot of the language on the website for Cradle to Cradle, uh, which makes me think either a marketer or a lawyer wrote it. But essentially, (laughs) this is some just sort of environmental wellness certification. So Michelle, when she was developing this line, she felt it was really important to create perfume because she is not able to wear commercial perfumes uh, that not only had ingredients that met the EWG ratings, but had a viable cradle-to-cradle gold certification standard. And she is even quoted, Henry Rose is not about what's the most natural, clean, or organic. It's about what is the most safe, which I think it's great. But of course, uh, we know that all cosmetic products should be safe if they're they're following the law. Safe is a hard one, because how do you say one thing is more safe than something else if something's already safe? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But going one step further, Henry Rose, her brand is also about transparency of ingredients in a market where perfume ingredients are typically trade secrets. So when you buy a perfume at the store from, let's say, a well-known brand that already exists, you'll see that the ingredients are water, some sort of alcohol and um, fragrance. She has taken it one complete step further and worked with a perfume house to disclose all of the ingredients that she has used in her five different blends. So you'll see it's water, some sort of denatured alcohol, and then a listing of every perfume ingredient that she's used. Is it derived from something synthetic or natural? And what was the purpose or a note or antioxidant or whatever Uh, for why she added it to her perfume, which is uh, pretty cool because I I like the concept of transparency and no other companies are readily spilling all of their guts. I know Unilever has said, oh, we're going to disclose all of our fragrance ingredients, but then you read the fine print and it's like above 0.01% or whatever it is to hold me to that number. So I think it's great that she's revealed everything here, but I still think there's a couple gaps And, you know, EWG and um, cradle to cradle aside, I don't think that means that this is necessarily a safe product just because those individual ingredients are safe. Of course, dose makes the poison. Uh, No matter where fragrance components are derived, they contain allergens. And I noticed on her website, she has um, some of the 26 allergens of concern in fragrances or botanical extracts, and she hasn't disclosed which ones are at levels that you should be concerned at, right? She didn't spill out the the percentages. Right. There's like linalool and limonene and... and Correct. It even, even they use phenoxyethanol, which is some people are sensitive to that for their skin and such. Exactly. And she even has uh, patchouli and vetiver oils, which individually may have very nice safety profiles, but at the end of the day, they still have some allergenic potential because they have allergens in them. And I think if I would have done this, uh, I would have done it a little differently in my approach to it and maybe spelled out, okay, these ones are at 
levels within the safety guidelines or whatnot. Um, I like what she's doing because I'm a huge advocate for transparency. I love that she's speaking to, hey, forget whether it's synthetic or natural or clean or whatever. It's just about safety. So I think it's pretty cool, but I'm still just not sure it's ahead of anyone else in the industry. Yeah, I mean, now with P&G and Unilever and L'Oreal disclosing their fragrance ingredients, I'm not sure how unique this is. Yeah. I also thought it was interesting that she's a direct-to-consumer brand or intending to be a direct-to-consumer brand. I think fragrances are high, and this has nothing to do with how she developed her brand or the brand story, but I just think typically the average experience of perfume shopping is going somewhere and experiencing the scent and being in an environment where you can decide if something is right for you. And I'm just wondering if any of our listeners have experience with buying perfumes online without having smelled them, because I I don't know what what the perfumes smell like. So I, I think it's pretty risky to buy them without experiencing them. That seems like a tough sale. To, to, like, if you don't know what it's going to smell like, would you? I mean, some people will buy it. It's just Michelle Pfeiffer, but boy, fragrant director consumer fragrance. I'm sure she'll have it in Sephora or some other uh, store, um, uh, offline store at some point. Yeah, call me old fashioned. I just got to smell it before I buy it. <laughs> All right, on to the beauty questions. This question comes from Julie. Julie says, I would love to hear your take on this new hero ingredient, broccoli seed oil. Fashionista is comparing it to retinol without the irritation, but I'm skeptical. What are the potential benefits and what kind of concentration should I look for? You know what? My favorite part of that question is where she said, uh, I'm skeptical. (laughs) (laughs) I tried not to interrupt you, but I have a lot of skepticism too. And before we get um, into the details of the composition of broccoli seed oil and potential benefits and concentration. I actually want to say this oil tops my list of interesting oils. I'll say it's in the top three of interesting oils. It has a really interesting feel on the finger, interesting color, interesting odor profile. It doesn't smell like broccoli, obviously, but it does have um, an interesting oil type smell. And I don't think enough people are using it. It's Probably like on the plate, it's not really sexy, but let's talk about what it does. So you're a broccoli seed oil advocate. <laughs> All right, let's uh, <laughs> let us talk about this. So broccoli seed oil is a material extracted from broccoli using supercritical liquid CO2 technology, and that's instead of just using you know dumping it in alcohol and and drawing out the ingredients instead. That's so it's a more advanced way to get the ingredients uh, without breaking them down. Then this gives it a pure oil that is rich in vitamins K and A in the form of beta carotene. It also has essential fatty acids such as erucic acid, and that's an omega nine fatty acid. Uh, it's mostly this uh, twenty two carbon acid and sulfur, raphane, glucosinoate, an active compound that promotes cellular integrity and it is able to help mobilize, reactivate, and perfect the skin cells' natural defenses to fighting the damaging effects of oxidants. Sounds fabulous. Uh, All right, that's all the cool marketing fluff about the ingredient. Basically, it's an oil you, you get from broccoli. So what is it supposed to do? 
So the sellers of broccoli oil and then the products that use it, they claim a number of things. First, they say it's an antioxidant, so it's going to stop free radical damage in skin and hair. Uh, number two, it's going to absorb quickly in the skin and hair, so presumably it can take uh, effect more quickly. It's not greasy, and it could be an alternative to silicones. It increases hair shine, similar to silicones. It's moisturizing, conditioning, and it can reduce irritation. Overall, these are kind of generic claims. So I, I don't know if it's going to be the next powerhouse ingredient, even though it has some fabulous aesthetic qualities to it that you pointed out. Which can be attributed to some of this list of claims here. Now, do I think it's an antioxidant? No, of course, it has some chemical attributes that help it prevent from being oxidized and going rancid, but that doesn't mean it's going to impart antioxidant effects onto your skin and hair. And I, I do think it feels great. It's very lubricious. It's not too greasy. I would agree with that. In the Fashionista article, they say that it has vitamin A, which can help reduce the negative effects of pollution. Mm. It seems that you could get more out of using vitamin A directly, but, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but this is another option. They claim that using it in the form of broccoli oil is less irritating than straight vitamin A, but I didn't see any evidence for that. I see no reason if you use the same amount of vitamin A as found in broccoli oil, then there probably wouldn't be a difference in irritation. Yeah, there's probably not a whole lot in there to begin with. Yeah. Then they claim it's high in omega-6 and omega-9, and that it's going to help with moisturization. These aren't ingredients aren't particularly good at moisturization when you compare them to things like petrolatum and mineral oil, so I don't understand the hype there. And finally, they make the outrageous claim that broccoli seed oil might prevent skin cancer based on some rat study and a six-person study that showed a reduction in cancer-causing cell damage, which I think is just a total exaggeration. And I just don't think necessary to present either as information. That can be very dangerous. It's an important study to bring up or consider, but also, you know, the study should be assessed by someone who has scientific literacy and make sure it's something even worth mentioning. You can see a reporter sees that and they kind of punch up the article a bit. Yeah. <laughs> you got to read these things with a little skepticism. But the bottom line is the broccoli seed oil to me is, is nothing special in my view. You could probably see superior results just including standard moisturizing ingredients, a sunscreen, and some specific vitamins. But the name broccoli is more familiar with consumers and it plays well with the natural trend and people want food in their cosmetics for some reason. So it's going to be good for marketing and for stories in fashionista yeah well another reality is that the consumer has no way of knowing how much broccoli oil is in the formula is it at 10 percent 0.01 percent so uh, while there are interesting possibilities and i think it feels super cool and is interesting it's really only marketing hype at this moment in time yeah and uh, you know there's that brownness you have to worry about <laughs> well yeah it's like slightly greenish but that's yeah, it's not a good color for most lotions. All right, should we get political here? <laughs> yeah. We had a listener, Camille, ask us what our thoughts were on a new bill in California that would ban the sale of makeup containing cancer-causing chemicals or toxins. And the bill she is referring... Wait a second, you guys in California are letting them sell cancer-causing uh, cosmetics. <laughs> only in the state of California. <laughs> <laughs> the bill that Camille is referring to is known as Bill AB-495, also called the Toxic Chemical Act or Toxic Free Cosmetics Act in California. 
And it was a bill that was supposed to move forward to be introduced, discussed, and voted on last week. And it ended up being uh, postponed because there was no evidence that there would be enough support to allow this bill to move forward to vote. And rightfully so. So essentially, this bill had a list of cosmetic ingredients like dibutyl phthalate, formaldehyde, formaldehyde releasers, which can be found in preservation systems, mercury and related compounds, various parabens, triclosan, carbon black, perfluoroalkyl substances, uh, and re really that's it on the list. Essentially saying that exposure to these ingredients has adverse health effects and they should be banned in the sale of cosmetics in the state of California. And of course, the bill was opposed by much of the industry because it oversimplified just how complex cosmetic regulations are and there really is no infrastructure set up to um, impose and enforce these. So they said you know, please don't support this bill. And of course, other people in the industry are saying cosmetics are killing people. We need this bill. So that's sort of the summation of it. One of my big objections to it was that they just kind of arbitrarily put a list of ingredients like all together. Like they ban asbestos, which is already banned from cosmetics. So I don't, it doesn't make sense to me. As far as lead goes, nobody puts lead into their cosmetics on purpose, right? It's a residual ingredient that's found in some colorants, mm -hmm. uh, but those colorants are approved by the FDA. So those are, are just kind of meaningless things. Then they ban stuff like propyl paraben and a, a couple other parabens and formaldehyde releaser preservatives which all have been demonstrated to be safe for use in cosmetics. Uh, this whole notion that people are uh, getting sick because of their cosmetics that are using these is, is just not proven and it's demonstrably false. My challenge with the bill more so is, yes, they have this list of what is seemingly arbitrary ingredients and they want them banned. There's no infrastructure in place to regulate any of this. I mean, first of all, there's already laws that say Cosmetic products have to be safe and the onus is on the brand owners to comply and make sure that cosmetic products are safe to be sold. And the Cosmetic Ingredient Review Board has reviewed some ingredients to determine what typical use levels are and what the safety parameters are. And then, of course, a lot of brands sell in uh, markets with more restrictive cosmetic chemical regulations, and so maybe they're complying there. But there simply is no infrastructure to support this regulation as it was written in California and certainly with interstate commerce, not the United States as a whole. And I think it, it appeared to be written really rashly and just oversimplified. And I, I couldn't get support behind it there with myself. When you don't have people with science backgrounds writing these laws, they're taking the headlines from activist groups who want to scare consumers. And this plays well with the politician's base. You can say, hey, I'm trying to get rid of these bad chemicals out of here. And like, yeah, everyone agrees we don't want cosmetics that are going to cause cancer. It just, it's obvious. It was interesting for me to see the follow-up headlines because this bill has pretty much been scuttled for another year or so. But the the headline in the LA Times, I think, was like the cosmetic industry crushes safe cosmetic bill. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah, my blood 
spoiled when I read that headline because it didn't matter who they interviewed in this article. It essentially was written that the cosmetics industry is interested in giving people <laughs> right. cancer and, and killing them. And it was very heavily weighed into the, what the EWG had to say, you know, which again, everyone can bring some valid viewpoints to the table, but I would really encourage any politician that is interested in bringing forth a bill like this again to not work with the EWG on it because I don't think they will ever gain any traction there. But call me, I'll help you write the bill. Um, <laughs> from an unbiased point of view, I like regulations. I'm very German in that sense. And I, th I think there's a way that something can be brought to the market where you know there can be some further accountability to making sure that cosmetic products are safe. Um, I, don't, I don't think they're not safe. I think that there's no infrastructure in place to ensure that compliance is being followed, but um, call, call me. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great idea. Speaking of calling us, we got an audio question. Yeah, our next question is from Sherry, who not only loves the show, but of course we love her because she sent her question in by audio. Hi, my name is Sherry, and first I wanted to say how much I enjoy uh, your podcast. I listen to it all the time. <laughs> I had a question about pH and uh, facial cleansers. I keep reading that you need a toner to restore the pH of your skin, and I had the impression that most liquid cleansers for the face are already formulated to uh, be at the right pH for the skin and that you don't need a toner for that, that the only alkaline soap would be a bar soap. But I see that repeated so, so frequently on the internet, I thought I would ask you uh, to see if my assumption was correct about facial cleansers. Thanks for considering my question. Well, Sherry, great question. Uh, there are lots of facial cleansers. They can range from a foam, a gel, a liquid, all the way to a bar of soap. And while they're having one thing in common, which is cleaning the skin, they can have different pH values. So you have a very valid question here. Typically, facial cleansers as purchased and maybe a bottle with a pump are formulated to have a pH of anywhere from four and a half to seven. And I think ideally between five and six, it is dependent upon what else the cleanser should be doing. Is it advertised as gentle? Is it an exfoliating cleanser with salicylic acid? What are the types of surfactants in the cleanser? Because all of them have uh, desirable pH ranges so that they're stable or maybe clear. And what is the pH range of the preservative system in the formulation? Because that will play a role in the end pH of the product as well. That's a great point. A lot of the pH choices of a product is not based on what the consumer necessarily will experience, but more about the formula and keeping the formula stable. Exactly. And sometimes you can start out with an end pH in mind. So, oh, I need a cleanser with a very low pH and I'm going to tailor the ingredients to that. But usually you kind of have this generic range that works and, you know, usually five to six, pretty much almost everything works in. And so you keep it right in there. And the acid mantle of skin, female skin is somewhere between four and a half and five and a half. You may see the, a lot of cleansers fall outside this range. And so, of course, in the best interest of any company, let's sell you more products. Uh, you should follow that up with a facial toner to rebalance the pH of your skin. That's what the companies tell you. That's what they want you to say. But let's look at this idea of the toner and whether it's going to really rebalance your pH. The reality is a skin toner, it's kind of like your appendix. You have one, but your body doesn't really need to use it. 
Your skin pH is really a result of the skin's acid mantle, which is a mixture of the sebum, which is the skin oils on your skin, and then the sweat that forms on the surface of your skin. The acid mantle keeps the pH of your skin around four and four and a half. That keeps the bacteria and the microbes down and, and keeps your skin healthy. Now, when you go through and you wash your skin, you strip away this acid mantle. Uh, and that's because the detergents and cleansers are really good at removing oils. But it's not something you need to worry too much about because over the next couple of hours, your skin essentially regenerates that skin mantle itself. And so it comes back. Well, what about the toner? Is the toner doing anything? Eh, toners don't do that much. You know, some experts will argue that toners will help to close your pores and tighten the cell gaps after cleansing, which will reduce the penetration of environmental contaminants. But this seems debatable to me. There's no real evidence of that. On some level, it just seems to me that the toners are a an extra step that that can actually feel good when you're when you're doing it, but it's not a crucial kind of a thing to do. No, and I actually don't use toners because of this whole pH rebalancing thing, but I like to use them because I'm not the world's most perfect rinser, and so it allows me an extra opportunity with a little spritz and a cotton pad to remove anything I didn't get off of my face, off of my face, so it's not irritated in that perspective. And also, for me, it feels really hydrating, and I like to feel like I'm delivering some extra goodies to my skin, whether it's really doing anything or not. I always never know with skincare because it, to me it's a long-term game, but I like toners for that purpose. So uh, Sherry, if you love using toners uh, after cleansing, don't feel like you have to, to restore the pH of your skin, unless your skin is feeling like it needs something extra with extra love, but uh, you can also moisturize afterwards and probably feel like your skin is air quotes rebalanced as well. Skin care on some level, a lot of it is, you know, a routine, an experience that makes you feel good. And if toning makes you feel good, feel free to do it. It's not probably providing you much benefit, but it is, uh, makes it more fun. So, eh, hey, go, go, go for it. Mm-hmm. We have time for one last question today. Yeah, this one comes from Deja. Deja says, I was told quaternium 18 is a silicone. Will a shampoo made with cocamidopropyl hydroxysultane and desylglucoside remove silicone buildup in hair? And specifically, is it gonna remove quaternium 18? Actually, when I was working on the Tresemme conditioner, we used quaternium 18 as an ingredient. It's an ingredient called Verisoft in the industry. Yeah, it's a, a great conditioner, by the way. It's very hard to duplicate the feel of yes, it. Yes, and it's, it, although it's a little tricky to work with because it's this white powder that is really hygroscopic, which means it absorbs water very quickly. So it's a little tricky to work with. Mm -hmm. But you know what it is not? It is not a silicone. I don't know where people got this notion it's a silicone, but it's actually a quaternized ammonium molecule and it has uh, two methyl groups but at the end it has these two tallow groups so and tallow comes from byproducts of animals so it's not necessarily a vegan ingredient in fact uh, i think the specific supplier that you spoke to period actually comes from mink wow well there yeah. you go <laughs> yeah so. i don't want to ask too many questions there <laughs> What should be important important to say is that no no animals are killed to make this ingredient. Mm -hmm. They just use a byproduct of the animals that are killed for food or apparently making coats still. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. 
Well, you know, I always think like in a hundred years, people are going to look back and think about how society was just horrific and the way we treat animals will probably be what they point to. Yeah. Well, uh, Deja doesn't have to worry about silicone buildup and she doesn't have to worry about her hair looking bad because Quaternium 18 is a great conditioning agent. That will be removed by using the uh, hydroxysultane and the glucoside shampoos. Now, as far as removing silicone, those surfactants, uh, they, they can also remove any kind of dimethicone buildup, although it depends on how much you use and how, how intense your shampooing is, but it's not going to remove it as well as, say, a sulfate shampoo. Yeah. I am actually not a fan of desilglucoside in shampoos. I think they tend to leave a, a sticky residue on the hair, and especially if your hair is fine. It can leave your hair uh, feeling matted, like you're almost felting the hair, like you would make felt out of wool. I'm not a huge fan, so I really tend to avoid those types of shampoos, but I do like Cocomito Propyl Hydroxysultane. That's a great surfactant. I agree. I've never been a glucoside fan myself. <laughs> Well, that's all the time we have today. Next time, we're going to answer more of your beauty questions. If you want to ask a question about beauty products, you can click the link in the show notes or record one on your phone and send it to thebeautybrains at gmail.com. Of course, we prefer and love audio questions because it makes it for a more interesting show. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Now, if you get a chance, go over to iTunes and leave us a review. That's going to help other people find the show and uh, help us get more questions, which we always like questions. You know, uh, incidentally, we used to go through and uh, read some of those iTunes reviews. Maybe we'll have to go and check some of those out and read some on the air again. That would be fun. Don't forget to follow us on our various social media accounts. On Instagram, we're at TheBeautyBrains2018. On Twitter, we're at TheBeautyBrains. And we also have a Facebook page. And we're on Patreon, too. Uh, If you want to show support for the show, Patreon is the best way to do that. Uh, That helps uh, keep us from reading advertisements about uh, mattresses and shaving kits, (laughs) which I hear on all my favorite podcasts. (laughs) Well, if you want to go there, feel free to go to patreon.com slash thebeautybrains and subscribe. We've got a couple of dozen uh, subscribers already, actually. uh, maybe over 30 so uh, we're making progress there so thanks for everyone who has uh, subscribed and uh, feel free to uh, subscribe yourself you know the benefit of uh, subscribing is that if you do ask a question we we get to your questions first we appreciate everyone's support through patreon and your support for listening to the show thanks again for listening and remember be brainy about your beauty thanks everyone Get in.